This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd, and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with Vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Hello. Hello. Welcome to another Cheerful Book Club. Uh, If you're not already, make sure you subscribe. If you enjoy it, make sure you rate and review us. That helps other people find it, and we appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. Now, some friends of yours. Yeah, well, I'm really delighted that on Book Club we're going to be talking to Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet-Karnak about their book, The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis. And as you know, Christiana oversaw the... 2015 Paris Climate Summit, the very successful uh, summit as the executive secretary of the UN organization overseeing that that summit. She's a fantastic uh, campaigner. Tom worked with her uh, on the Paris Agreement. And I think what's great about their book is it is, you know, they, they do a podcast called Outrage and Optimism. And I think it has both. It has both outrage at where we are and the scale of the tasks that we face, but also optimism that we can that we can rise to the climate emergency that we face. All right, this week's Cheerful Book Club is the future we choose. Cheerful Book Club, talking to the writers, exploring the biggest ideas of our time. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Well, Christiana and Tom, international diplomats, activists, authors podcasters thank you so much for joining us thank you very much i'm not sure everything else is fine i'm not sure about the (laughs) diplomatic part really no because i mean for one thing um i'm the most undiplomatic diplomat the undiplomatic diplomat yes 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 that's 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 your that'll be the title tom has never even aspired to be a diplomat (laughs) so there you are the first thing she said to me is i'm hiring you because you're not a diplomat (laughs) that's a good way of that's where a good way of doing diplomacy so let's start there um, we, we've explained uh, the work you did instrumentally, Christiana, in making the Paris Agreement happen and, and, and Tom working with you. Just talk about the story of how you came to work together on the Paris Agreement. Well, it was 2013. We had already been at it for, uh, for three years, I guess, since we started in 2010 to reconstruct the international process that was, frankly, in the rubbish and bin. And we'd met, you and I had met at Copenhagen. Oh, and in, we both survived in the sort of in the uh, oh my in, in I, the sort of it was in the, the kind of entrails the entrails of the Copenhagen <laughs> the blood uh, uh, <laughs> the blood and gore there yeah <laughs> wow I totally at one forgot point you that were trying to, didn't somebody try and call on you to chair yeah, the yeah, final yeah, yeah, bit yeah and there was some weird ru- UN rule because it was after midnight that yes. you ceased to be yes, whatever you yes, had been yes, which would have yes. enabled you to chair it yes that is totally correct I, it was a few minutes after so it's like a Cinderella principle yeah. <laughs> except the other way around <laughs> right <laughs> Anyway, so you were trying to rescue, yeah, rescue that uh, that process that was in the uh, rubbish bin um, because of the failure of Copenhagen. I'm glad to know we're both survivors of yeah. that. Um, and so I took it over in uh, in 2010, more or less in June, July, and we had been reconstructing that process, and we're relatively confident that uh, we would two years later that we would have an agreement. But I was not confident at all that the agreement was going to be at that 
point that I could visibly uh, see our path toward an ambitious agreement. So it's no longer can we agree, it's actually how ambitious it's going to be and how far-reaching, both in terms of decadal um, timing, but also in terms of environmental integrity. And we were striving for both. We were striving for a long-term uh, agreement, and we were also striving stri- uh for the highest environmental integrity, i.e. full, full alignment with science. Um, so we knew we would get a sort of agreement, but we didn't want just a sort of. We wanted the agreement. And how did you and Tom end up working together? Well, so we ended up working together because in my concern about uh, the lack of quality, highest quality of the agreement, I really wanted to bring someone in who was not a UNE person, someone who looked at this issue from a very different perspective, someone who did understand climate, but uh, who had uh, a different approach, precisely to get back to our introduction, someone who's not a diplomat. So Tom, and what was it What was it like from your perspective? First impressions first of Christiana. Impressions. First impressions, well, right. Oh so no, now here we go, here we go. So there's, Diplomatic there's, love at first sight. <laughs> well, well, you're here. So I don't know how required it was on Christiana's behalf. But um, so, so what, what, were what, happened, what were you so doing? So I was running an NGO called CDP in North America. So I was working on climate and particularly on kind of corporate strategy on climate. And carbon disclosure. Carbon disclosure projects, yeah. exactly. And um, so a friend of mine called Paul Dickinson, um, is also a friend of Christiana's and Christiana and the founder of CDP and the founder of CDP. And they've been talking about the fact that, that, that Christiana needed somebody who kind of sat outside this international process to come and play a particular role in kind of helping make sure we got to the agreement we needed to in Paris. So Christiana gave me a call and we spent like a whole day in New York, walking around Manhattan, talking about kind of where the world was, what was needed, the road still to This climb. is 2010? This is 2013. So a couple right, of years before right. Paris. At the end of which, Christiana turned to me and said, well, it's clear that you have none of the skills or experience necessary for this job, but I've got a really good feeling about it. Let's do it. And that was my first experience of working intuitively with Christiana, um, which was... most people crazy. But but this was sort of part of the skills that got the world to an agreement a few years later. Is is that your normal modus operandi? Totally. Isn't that pathetic? Well, it was working. for, for, For those who are very structured and organized, it really always takes them by surprise. And And... But obviously, we want to talk about the book, and we'll come on to the book. But what do we? What do our that our listeners will obviously know about the Paris Agreement? What do you think is the key things for you that really both matter about it and are instructive in telling us how it sort of came about? And I know that's a very big question, you know, and you could talk for hours about that. But what's the key things to have in our mind as we have this conversation? Well. Two factors have already alluded to. The first is that it truly is science-based. We were very, very active in um, extending a friendly hand out to the IPCC um, because it had amazingly... Uh, the relationship the intergovernmental between the intergovernmental panel, yeah, panel, panel on climate change, which is the organization that brings together all the client side, uh, climate scientists of the world. And amazingly, the two institutions, the one that negotiates and the one that does the scientific research, were not having a very good relationship. And uh, so it was, it was a very intentional choice to bring these two communities together. The second factor that was very critical was actually that while governments are the only ones that can actually negotiate every word, comma, and semicolon in these legal texts, 
we brought together with a lot of help from Tom, and that was his huge contribution. We brought together a very, very large group of stakeholders who are not federal governments, but rather all the country, the private sector, governments at uh, at subnational levels, um, investors, the spiritual communities, the scientists, the young people, the old people, the indigenous people, I mean, everyone, because we needed a much more comprehensive view of uh, of what we were actually building. Tom, was there anything you want to add? I mean, I think that that journey when I joined, right, so the governments were already making progress towards this commitment. And my role was to kind of help make sure that it stayed on track. So at moments when diplomacy wasn't able to kind of get yeah. governments to step forward, what Christiana had me do was kind of build a network of other supporters and players that we could leverage both in real time during the negotiations to keep them moving in the right direction. And also outside of that, I mean, one kind of fun example I've sometimes used is uh, we had a problem with Russia, right? So Russia was not coming forward with a nationally determined contribution. Now, how do you exert influence and encourage them to see this moment of leadership when you're not controlling a national government, right? You have no authority yeah. over any sovereign national government. So if you're thinking laterally, what we realize is one of the few groups that could do that is the Christian church in Russia, like very powerful, the Coptic Christians. Leader of the Coptic Christians is Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople. Very powerful in Russia, right? A few phone calls, and of course, he wants to help. So then he's prepared to go to Moscow, talk to Putin, go to the Kremlin. This was the kind of sort of interactions we tried right. to orchestrate to figure out so how going we going well to, beyond government. Going beyond government to get, that is applied. get everyone else to step up, but also play a role in talking to governments. And also nurture the personal relationships with all of these people, in addition to the government people. Um, you know, just, just to follow that, um, I just had tea with uh, with the patriarch in Davos just a couple of months ago. Um, and, you know, we've remained friends throughout that because of exactly what Tom says we reached out to so many people who really understood what the task was, what the challenge was, and they wanted to help. Any hints for be befriending a patriarch? <laughs> you, want, you want texting terms with the patriarch? Does he do texts? Does he do, does he do emojis? His holiness. Right, yeah, yeah. Is he a big emoji guy? He, he needs to be addressed as his all holiness. Right, no emojis. <laughs> right, um, let's talk about the book. So... You, we had a conversation in my office. I'm not claiming credit here, but we had a conversation in my office probably 18 months ago, and I suggested you should do a podcast. I think you were thinking about doing it. I, no, no, no. I, full credit where it's due. We love your podcast. Well, I've listened totally to it since it came out, and it. it was a major I, feature. I'm so in sorry, us. your microphone. There's something. <laughs> <laughs> could, you, could you just repeat that? Can you repeat that, Mark? <laughs> Um, but and I was very very encouraging that you should you should do it. And I, I love your your podcast. You've had fantastic people should really outrage and optimism. People should really listen to it. You've had fantastic people, David Attenborough, whole range of people um, on it. But but what about the book? So what 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 made you think you wanted to do the book? So. The premise for the book is the fact that we have just entered the most consequential decade in human history, right? So we've left climate so late that we have this one opportunity in the 2020s, and science tells us that we need to cut global emissions by fully 50%. By 2030. By 2030, in the next 10 years. Now, if we don't do that, our opportunity to limit climate change to one and a half degrees, which is the point at which these really quite alarming feedback loops begin to kick in, starts to recede, right? And we begin to lose control of the climatic system. So this is the do or die decade. So what we wanted to do in the book is a few things. The first of all, the first thing is to set out for people what's at stake in that choice. 
right? Because a lot of us kind of think about climate change, we kind of know the risks, but to really inhabit what those worlds would be like. So we start off by taking the reader to these two immersive worlds in 2050. My children will be younger than I am now in 2050. They'll be in their late 30s. So first of all, we construct the world of on our road to nearly four degrees. And that's a really dark future, right? That's a world of mass migrations, of far more diseases, of food security, of food insecurity, of more borders, of air pollution, you know, and and critically as well, it's a world where we don't really have hope for a future. But interestingly, and that's only 12 pages of the book. So, you know, we think it plays an important role, but it's just where we start from. And actually writing that we fa- I found kind of cathartic, right? Because we've got this sort of dark fear as to what the future might be like. Setting it out there in stark terms kind of gave me a sense of calm resolve that I will spend the rest of my working life working to avoid that. But it kind of felt good to look at it. But we also set out what the world could be like in 2050 on a path to limiting climate change to one and a half degrees. And that's a completely different world, right? That's a world where we've reforested the planet, where the air quality has improved, where humanity has come together to do a really big thing and what that feels like to live in that world and be part of that generation that's done that. So the first thing we wanted to do in the book was set out what's at stake. But what I've just said... To force a choice. To force a choice, right? Which we have to make now. But what I've just said is, is a lot, right, for listeners to absorb. And most people, if you say that to them, they kind of get this tightness in their chest and they're like, oh my God, we're not going to make it. We have this kind of fear about it. So the central part of the book is about how we show up in that and how we can show up as human beings and the types of attitudes that can make us feel like we're real participants in creating that future. So we, we draw from our experience of the Paris Agreement of what types of attitudes could shift a system from pessimism to optimism so you can achieve a transformational outcome? And we kind of think about the fact that we all need to embody some of those now. We can get into that. And then the third section is what we can do, right? We can no longer afford the luxury of feeling powerless in the face of this enormous challenge. We all need to feel like we're active participants in creating the future. And we set out a model of how people can do that. Amen. How's that for a good summary? I feel eh? bloody That's good okay. summary. I tell you what, I I'm going like to buy five coffees. Standing up and applauding. Honestly, um, that is an elevator it's, pitch. It's, oh. it's hard to compete with that summary. Yeah, yeah. It, really is. it really is. Um, I mean, you discuss in the book the three mindsets uh, around tackling the climate crisis. Maybe that is the next place to go before we get onto your 10 steps. But... Ten actions. Do you, do you want to say something about the different mindsets that you think are important? Yeah, uh, we we deliberately use provocative terms for the mindset. Uh, and when we started out with stubborn optimism, that by the way, our editor and our publisher uh, really tried to have us change the term, but they didn't know who they were dealing with. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> I mean, they are here and they are yeah. nodding. Their representatives are nodding. I can tell our listeners. You were optimistic. You could keep yeah. the phrase and stubborn yeah, about they, it. They were, they were exactly. fine with the optimism, sort of, you know, yeah. ish. They've eventually come around, but the stubborn piece, they were really very concerned about. However, yeah. uh, you know, it's there. Uh, they should have talked to Bartholomew in advance. <laughs> <laughs> they, wouldn't have, they wouldn't have got anywhere. <laughs> yes, maybe that was the nudge that yeah, we needed. Exactly. But what we mean by optimism is not naivete. It's not ignorance of science. It's certainly not... Uh, ignoring the news that hits us every day of the impacts that we're already witnessing, 
the last and the greatest of which has been Australia. That's not what we mean. And it's not about just pretending that everything is going to be okay. Uh, you know, close your eyes and, and just hope for the best. It's none of that. It's actually quite to the contrary. It is take full knowledge, full knowledge of the science, of the impacts, of the realities that we're facing. And in the face of that, in the face of that reality, take a very intentional decision. Choose to be optimistic. Choose to say, we're not going to stand for this. Yes, that is the reality that we have right now, which corresponds, by the way, to the first world in the book, except we have given you the consequences that we that science projects for 2050. So if we do nothing, that's where we're going to get. That is unacceptable. We cannot descend into that kind of a world. And so our task is to be aware of the facts and therefore incredibly determined with a gritty determination that we are going to harness all our creativity, our ingenuity, our stubbornness, if you will, um, to actually change things and that we can do that. Stubborn optimism is the first mindset. What are the other two? The second mindset um, has to do with radical regeneration, which is something that is innate in us. We call it regeneration um, because what we want to describe is that regenerative spirit that we all have innately of coming to the aid and the support of someone who we love if that person is in any kind of trouble or sickness or whatever. And and we will immediately go to that person and offer any support TLC that um, that, that person needs which we don't often do with, oursel- uh, with ourselves and those of us who work on climate, as you will know, um, and as the children in the streets have already experienced, despite the fact that they have been at this for barely a year or a year and a half, but they're already into that horrible, horrible grief that is so, it, it eats up your energy. And so we have to remember that we have to be regenerative with ourselves. And the third level of the regeneration is actually with nature. So once we have tapped into that regenerative spirit, we have to stretch the arc of regeneration to nature because we have to regenerate degraded souls, con- uh, soils, contaminated waters, and uh um, we have to regenerate certainly the air that we um, that we breathe. We have to be able to regenerate our forests, etc. All our biodiversity that we have been losing, and we have to understand that that is just as important for our well-being and for our continuity of life on this planet as our most basic human needs. And the third piece that we put out that sort of derives from those two is um, something that we call endless abundance, uh, because we live in such a mind and such a mindset of scarcity. And we have grown up, I don't know about the two of you, but I grew up uh, with um, the thought that there was only so much to be had, and that the zero sum theory operated in everything in our lives. And that the only way for me to prosper and gain was to make sure that you lost uh, or the other way around. And that can no longer be the case. That can no longer drive us. We have to move away from competition toward collaboration and understand that in the face of climate change, in the face of the reality that we've already overextended over all planetary boundaries, 
either we all win together or we will definitely all lose. Those are the three mindsets that you talk about. You've you've set out the choice, Tom, um, the the two futures. Tell us about the ten. Pick out some of the both of you the ten actions and what you because because what's great about the book I think is it is it's both sort of theoretical in the sense that it sets out the science and. Uh, it, it's it's sort of political, but it's also practical. It mm. says, "What do we need to do?" Right. Um, it's not just here are these two futures, and maybe we'll get to one of them, maybe we'll get to the other one. It says, "Oh, so talk to us a bit about what I've got some I'm interested in, but but tell us about some yeah. of the ten actions that so, you think are important." So actually, one of the easiest ways to explain that is that there's three subcategories of action, right? Which we can go through, which they they all fit into. The first is having taken those perspectives. Wait, is that in your index? The three subcategories, because you no, know there's. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if you picked up. A the oh, you, you walked right into it. Oh, I look see. At, look at, <laughs> well, because Go it's on. not in the index. Let's yeah. wash your dirty linen. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not We in love the, dirty linen, this, don't we? This, this is, podcast. you know, conceptual categorization that, yeah. were in, that was in our heads, but we wanted the clarity of 10 actions. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so we don't break it down in the book, but we ourselves have. But one of you wanted it in and one of you didn't. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. Um, so anyway, three <laughs> subcategories. <laughs> the first of those is kind of taking those mindsets. It's about how we show up into our action, right? So we talk about some attitudes that can make us effective in the world. One of those is about facing the future and not giving into nostalgia. Letting go of the old world. Letting go of the old world. So there's a lot of nostalgia politics around yeah. at the moment. And you see that emerging everywhere you know and it's not just in sort of like take back control make america great again everything is hearkening back to some imagined past where things were perfect and political promises that will kind of recreate that actually what we talk about in the book is we need to be brave the future is going to be different that doesn't mean it has to be bad and sort of allowing ourselves to buy into that narrative of the past will make us vulnerable so that's one of them another one of those is around the fact that we really need to face the reality of the moment we're in we're in a moment of real peril Right. And facing that and feeling that in our bones is part of moving through it. But we also have to have a vision of the future. So that's the first sort of subcategory is kind of our, how we show up. The second category is our own personal lives, our own footprint. Right. So we'll get to the systemic stuff in a minute. But in terms of ourselves, actually, we argue that we all have to take much more responsibility for this journey over the next 10 years. Now, science sets out that emissions globally need to be at least 50 percent lower than they are today by the end of the decade. Actually, we as humans tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10 years. And if we start now and we think about it carefully and we plan, that's enough time, right? If I said to you, you've got to reduce your footprint by 50% in the next 10 years, that's a time period that will include changing your boiler probably, any furnaces, air conditioner, car, capital-intensive items of your life. You can make other choices if you look at it with a 10-year lens. And then the third piece is around how we engage with power. So to do this, we're going to need to engage with power and encourage it to shift, right, so that we can achieve these systemic changes. And political power is a major part of that. We're now seeing civil disobedience on the streets that we haven't seen for a generation. History tells us that once that reaches a tipping point of around three and a half percent, it tends to shift the entire political narrative. Those numbers are now within our reach, right? And also what we're seeing, particularly with the school strikers, is it's the people who are most vulnerable who are rising up. If you think about like the civil rights movement, it was African-Americans who are most vulnerable, the suffragette movement, women calling for the vote. 
climate change is fundamentally unfair and it's unfair generationally as well as geographically and economically. So the vulnerable are the young and they're now rising up. And that's a really encouraging sign. We also talk about engaging with corporate power, how we can shift corporations to move more quickly. But those are the three subcategories, how we show up, what we can do in our lives and how we engage with power. See, I told you it's a good summary. Good summary. <laughs> I like the subcategories. <laughs> See, and we didn't even print them in the book. Now, let's talk about the COP26, the Conference of the Parties, which is the five years on from Paris meeting that is due to take place in Glasgow in uh, November of this year. This is very important because as you uh, referred to at the beginning, Christiana, built into the Paris Agreement was not just a short-term agreement, but a long-term a framework, and that includes a five-year review process. So this is the moment, to go back to Tom's 50% reductions by 2030, when countries are supposed to ratchet up their ambitions. Exactly. So that instead of, um, because at the moment we've got a Paris Agreement for one and a half degrees, but country commitments add up to about three degrees of warming. 3.7. 3.7 degrees of warming. Tell us about COP26, how important it is, and where you think we are with it. I'll start, and then you can dive in. So... um, So the, so the first I thing usually to realise... So COP26 is completely different from Paris, yeah. is the first thing to realise, right? Because as you said, there's no negotiated outcome. In Paris, you had to get 195 countries to agree yeah. to a unanimous decision that was gaveled through at a moment of delivery. And in Glasgow, there's actually no political jeopardy for a shared multilateral outcome. There's a series of individual step-ups by individual countries that need to come forward and strengthen their commitments. And that will happen throughout this year. And on the road to that, there's kind of good and bad news. So the bad news is that we now have very important countries that we know 100% will not step forward. Whatever happens in the US election, Donald Trump will still be president when the COP happens. And the US will pull out a few days afterwards, right? Now, of course, if a Democrat wins, then that will cast a completely different tone, but it won't change the substance of the commitment. We know Brazil will not, will not step up, and we know that Australia will not step up either. So you then have a non-universal step up of ambition. And at the moment, there are a significant number of countries who've said they will step up, but it's the smaller countries, right? So everybody's looking at what happens with China and India. And of course, the EU needs to step up its 2030 target too. And I think this is a really important point is that obviously coronavirus, even before coronavirus, the agenda was looking pretty full for the year, right? Because of everything that's happened. And the UK government has to realize this is much more important than Brexit. Brexit will be a footnote to history compared to this. And actually what's going to happen this year will determine the quality of life on this planet for generations. And one more wrinkle uh, to add to that is that obviously the UK um, needs to put forward its NDC, otherwise known as the Nationally Determined Contribution, because... For 2030 in particular, because we've said we're going to be net zero by 2050, but the key date is 2030. Yeah. And there is some... Well, and, and here, about and, what we're actually going to do for 2030. And, and heretofore, yeah. obviously, the UK was part of the EU target, right? And so now we're standing on our own feet. So now every COP president has to be politically neutral, uh, but it also has to be a role model. There's no way that uh, the UK can stand up there and have these unilateral or bilateral conversations with every country in the world about what they're going to bring to Glasgow without first putting forward what the UK is going to do. So there's a lot of homework to be done. So your podcast is called Outrage and Optimism. This is a cheerful book club. Um, I think you should each, to, to finish, give us something to be 
cheerful or optimistic about? There is so much good news on climate. It just really depends on what color are the glasses that you put on. If you put on your fatalistic, defeatist uh, glasses, you will, of course, only let into your consciousness the bad news on climate, of which there is much. But if you put on a different pair of glasses, you can actually see a lot of good news on climate. So um, renewable energy for a start. 25% of all of the electricity that is already on the grids around this world is already renewable. And we're on track to be at 50% by 2030. That is pretty darn good from where we were. Furthermore, the cost of renewable energy has just fallen dramatically, right, over the past. So much so that the British government has now reopened itself to onshore wind. There you go. Because of the pressure of the, it was the economically sensible thing to do. totally. And, And I mean, it's true here. It's also true for India, right? which is maybe as a surprise, but the fact is that solar, not in the in India, it's not wind, but solar is so much cheaper in India than coal. Um, so, you know, everything on the energy generation side is actually moving very much in the right direction. Side by side with that, obviously, electrification of transport has to be done uh not just because it is more efficient, but also should go in consonance with the cleaning up of the electricity. Because if you're going to electrify transport, but use coal electricity, then you haven't really um, helped much. But since we're on a pathway, I would argue exponential pathway to clean up our grids, um, then everything that is happening on uh, electrification of vehicles in particular is actually quite exciting. And there are some projections out there that actually most uh, ICE, most internal combustion engine models will have a very competitive, if not at cost parity option that is electric by this year, by this year. And we have never seen as much investment into battery technology as we've seen in the past three years. So not just batteries for cars, not just batteries for the electric grid, but actually batteries that go all the way from small to huge applications like grid size applications because they are using all different kinds of technologies that will be used for different uses. But actually, what is really exciting to me is not even all of this because all of that is old news, okay? Old news. Doesn't surprise me anymore. What I'm really excited about this year is what is going to happen in the financial sector. I actually think we're just going to go whoop in the financial sector because we're going to go whoop. <laughs> Do you know that is that's that a technical term? That is a technical. I've heard Mark Carney use that term. <laughs> what is amazing to me is that we are already when you see what is coming at this uh, amazing transformation that I think we'll see this year is. The divest, uh, invest movement that started only a few years ago is already up to $12 trillion. So this is getting out of fossil fuels, in other words. Getting out of fossil fuels, divesting from high carbon, moving into low carbon. $12 trillion. You have recently announced, about three months ago, you have the alliance of asset owners that are top of the financial food chain, right? They own those assets. They instruct their asset managers. They instruct the corporations that they partially own. And this particular group, 
basically owns a chunk in every single company. They are already at 19 members, $5.5 trillion. And they have, for the very first time, adopted a commitment to get us from their financial portfolio point of view to 1.5. That is the first subset in the financial sector that has accepted 1.5 as being the final destination. That's a huge change over what we had before. And and in addition to that, I think that Mark Carney's uh, well-thought-out system for the entire financial sector to become much more aware of the risk is really paying off. So you now have over 800 companies, 50% growth in the past three to four months, months, um, that are really understanding Whoa, this is, this is bad news, right? And this is we, the exposure that they the exposure have to high carbon. invested in oil and gas, yes, yes, which is yes. never going to be stranded, used. Right. Stranded assets, yeah. you know, the risk to yeah. losing the value of those assets, which none of them want. So frankly, you can barely find an insurance company these days that is still insuring coal. You can barely find a self-respecting bank that is still lending to coal. And that will only continue. In fact, the next wave is going to be to oil and gas. That's a pretty long list. That's a fairly long list, isn't it? Yeah. Do you want but to I add- could continue. <laughs> Do you want to add anything? Tom? I can add one very small thing. Hey, you've right? got and to involve go- the word whoop. whoop. <laughs> that, that's the outcome. Yeah. We have the outrageous good fortune to see this transition. Right, that's going to unfold in the next 30 years. All the things Christian has described. The other thing I would add is I really believe we're going to reforest the planet, right? The amount of momentum and political process that is now leading into that, we're going to recover the biodiversity that we knew as kids, right? So when we were kids, we'd drive on a summer night and at the end of the evening, the windscreen would be full of bugs, right? It's not like that anymore. It's all gone. So many species have disappeared. Over the next 30 years, we're going to reconstruct that. We're going to completely remake the economy of this planet. It's going to be fairer for people. It's going to be clean. And we'll always be the generation that did that. And that is an amazing period of time to live through. Is that reasons well, enough to be chosen? Totally. <laughs> there we go. Abundance. <laughs> In abundance. Christiana Figueres and Tom Rivet Karnak, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. And you need to buy the book. The future we choose. You don't need to buy the book. The listeners need to buy the book. <laughs> the future we choose surviving the climate crisis is on the bestseller list. Yes, it yeah, is. Yeah. So you need to go out and buy it and listen to their podcast. And there listen to go. their podcast. Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly. Think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. 
It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 